Everyone has a story, different needs, wants, and goals, and how to attain them. Your story determines your solution. Whatever your situation and story, locum tenens should be a part of the conversation. How do you find out if locum tenens is a good option for you? Go to an unbiased, informative source like locumstory.com. You'll learn all the ins and outs of locums, details on travel and housing, assignment coordination, tax information, and more. You'll also hear firsthand stories from locums physicians from all walks of life, so you get a bigger picture of the diverse options. Get a comprehensive view of locums and decide if it's right for you at locumstory.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Nail the Door Throw podcast. My name is Dr. Cole. Myself and Dr. Fitz started this podcast to go over high-yield orthopedic surgery topics, and you are now tuned into yet another episode of the podcast. And today, we're actually going to talk a little bit about anterior shoulder instability. If you want more of a background on anterior shoulder instability, check out our episode with Dr. Mamaya. But this one, we're actually going to get a little bit deeper into it, and we're going to talk about anterior shoulder instability in patients that have some bone defects. And today, we have Dr. Matthew Preventure to talk to us a little bit more about this. He has a long list of accolades, very well known, but I will at least try to say at least some of his accolades. Uh, Dr. Uh, Preventure is a uh, sports medicine specialist. He practices out of the Stedman Clinic in Vail, Colorado. Uh, he is the principal investigator at the renowned Stedman and Philippon Research Institute aimed at innovation and improvement in patient care in the field of orthopedics. He completed his orthopedic surgery residency at the Naval Medical Center, San Diego, and his orthopedic shoulder, knee, and sports surgery fellowship at Rush University. He is a prolific researcher. He has published over 200 peer-reviewed articles. He has authored over five textbooks, over 148 book chapters. He is the assistant editor-in-chief of Arthroscopy, the Journal of Arthroscopy and Related Surgery. He has been named one of the top 28 shoulder surgeons and the top 28 knee surgeons in the United States of America by Orthopedics Today. He has over 20 years of clinical orthopedic experience. He has also served as the medical director and the head team physician for the New England Patriots football team. He was a medical director and head team physician for the Patriots during the 2014 Super Bowl championship season. For those of you that remember that, uh, that was not too, too long ago. He also serves as the second opinion orthopedist for the NFL, the MLB, and the NHL. And he is a recognized leader, especially in the field of sports, in the field of shoulder and shoulder instability. He holds positions on many of the professional societies. His list is very, very impressive all the things that he has done and accomplished. And he has taken the time out of his day to talk to us today about shoulder instability. So without further ado, let's go ahead and hop into today's episode. And also don't forget to check out the YouTube channel because we have a video that accompanies this audio podcast in case you all like video and want to see some of the things that we're talking about. But again, without further ado, let's go ahead and hop into today's episode. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring doctors Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. Dr. Provencher, welcome to the, the Nailed It Ortho podcast. Happy to have you on. Well, great pleasure, Cody. Awesome to be here. Thank you. Yeah, it's been a while, and I'm so glad we could finally get a time down together to go ahead and talk. I've been looking forward to this, for us talking for a little while. It should be a good episode. I'm really looking forward to it. So again, thanks for your time. Yeah, wonderful. And likewise, congratulations on a great topic and, and podcast. Yes, sir. Thank you. 
And we typically start off the podcast just asking a couple of questions, getting to know you a little bit, and then we'll transition and talk about some more shoulder instability. So one question I have for you is you served in the Naval Academy. And so how has serving in the Naval Academy kind of changed your outlook on maybe medicine or orthopedics and kind of how the way you practice it and look at it, if it has at all? Yeah, I grew up in a small town in, in New Hampshire and I mean, it was like all of us were looking at a number of different schools to attend for college and the, the Naval Academy. Me sort of presented itself as an opportunity, and I ended up going to Navy in Annapolis. And so the original Top Gun movie had come out. It was super cool and wanted to be a jet pilot. But (laughs) when I got down there, my eyes went bad, meaning like 2050 vision. So you had to have 2020, 2025 to be a jet pilot. And so I couldn't be a jet pilot. So I started asking around, what else can I do? And Fortunately, one of my mentors, actually had future mentors, it wasn't at the time I, I wrote any a few small overuse injuries like we all get. And he, a guy named Eddie McDevitt, <clears throat> a great human being, orthopedic surgeon at the Naval Academy, met him and said, you should think about orthopedics. <laughs> and so that's where medicine, I first person in medicine in my family, didn't know anything about it. Didn't know how to, didn't know what med school was, didn't know how long it was, didn't know what residency was. And so that really started the journey. And and you have to do medical school, obviously, after Naval Academy. And I got out of the Navy, Cody, and then went to Dartmouth Med School and then owed a bunch of time into the Navy after that. So that's where I, I practiced in the Navy for a long time. I was in San Diego and Japan, mostly stationed in Coronado for the vast majority, worked at our large hospital there called Balboa or Navy Medical Center, San Diego. And I was there on Coronado about 18, 19 years. We had a, had a really good run, but was the Navy brought me to 50 different countries and tons of humanitarian things and deployments and really great opportunities, not the least of which was an incredible sports medicine practice. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's awesome. Sounds like a great experience to be able to do that and, and travel and, and that experience in its own, just, just unique. And, and that being said, you're talking about a, a great sports medicine practice. So I also know that you work with a good amount of professional teams. And so we have a lot of residents that listen to this podcast. I may be trying to decide between sports or whatever subspecialty. What is it actually like working with a lot of these different professional teams? Is this high stress environment or what is it like? Yeah, I would say all of the above. I didn't really know it at the time of my first pro team. And what I would say is the beauty of the pro team is you, you learn more from them than you can probably teach them. You learn a ton from the team that takes care of the team, the therapists, the athletic trainers, the nutritionists, the strength and conditioning, the mental health professionals. And really how to optimize team medical and human performance. And then that's what we did with the SEAL team first was late 90s, early 2000s, we set up the uh, really large human performance program called the Tactical Athlete Program and really cool program. And then when I transitioned to the NFL and was all the head team position for the Patriots, also worked for the Bruins, the Red Sox, other pro teams. It was very similar because we were able to know what human performance was about, be able to interact with all the great professionals that take care of the team. It takes literally a village, it takes a team to take care of a team. And I think that's the most important part. And your head athletic trainer, super important for the pro team. And But everyone else that you have on the team to take care of the team is probably the biggest thing that you learn. 
Right. Yeah, I know, you know, a lot of people are, are interested in doing that one day and I know there's a lot of moving parts to it. And third and last question here, I guess the age old question is out of all the different specialties, what made you choose this specialty? You're kind of doing a sports size of things. Yeah, it sort of went back to mentors along the way and you're gonna have some great mentors all the way through your career and from high school to college to medical school and now right residency and or fellowship and beyond. Those mentors, I I think, are really important. It showed me the opportunities within sports medicine. I I was actually looking at at spine surgery. It was one of my great mentors at Dartmouth was Jim Weinstein, and he's a great guy. It was the editor-in-chief of Spine Journal and a great, incredible legend in spine surgery himself. And he was doing some great stuff in epidemiologic studies and outcome studies and really pushing the outcomes moving in the early 90s at, at Dartmouth in spine surgery. And so I was enamored with that. I thought I was going to be a spine surgeon at first, but really just the sports medicine just drew me back again and again, just because of the combination of you know, arthroscopy and, and technology and just the injuries we dealt with. Yeah. Again, I mean, I'm obviously biased. I'm going into sports medicine, so I think it's an awesome field. <laughs> but yeah, for all the reasons above that you just said. And, and so switching gears today, we're going to talk a little bit about recurrent shoulder instability. And Dr. Provencher, how, how how often are you seeing this in in your clinic when patients come in? Like, are you, is this happening a lot, or or just in, in your experience? Yeah, it's pretty frequent. Obviously, the most the, the biggest thing we take care of in the shoulder, just percentage wise, is, is rotator cuff, and probably rotator cuff with or without arthritis now, and the yep. treatments we have for that, and then then we have other athletic injuries, including labrum injuries, recurrent instability slap tears, biceps injuries, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, it depends on practice, but it's uh, in, in referral pattern, but it's reasonably frequent. But I, I got to tell you, the military was amazing. I, I did see whenever 40, 50 patients a day and out of 40 or 50, 35 would have shoulder instability. Oh, wow. And that's not a civilian practice, as we said, not in the military. Not at all. Sort of switch. I'll see 35 rotator cuffs and now 10 shoulder instabilities in a clinic. Right. So it's just... I, I was blessed with a population in the military. Maybe this is part of the story, Cody, is how we learned because we saw. So you you have to learn what you see and you learn what you do. And we saw a lot of instability and still see a lot of my colleagues that have had the opportunity to help mentor along now in the military doing a great job with this and shoulder instability world. Yeah. And for the patients that are having recurrent instability, are a lot of them after being treated with trial of non-operative or after being treated operatively that you see it? Both. I mean, for the non-operative, obviously, is more common, but there is quite a bit of in the shoulder instability case that's had a recurrence or could be failed or the failed instability case, as we say. I always try to think about this in three buckets, meaning a failed case could be one that has recurrent instability, but you could also not do well if you lost your motion, if you have stiffness, if you have pain if you have other issues going on. So you, you can fail instability surgeries for a, a number of things, not just recurrent instability, if you will. Yeah. And, and they always ask us on, on these different, I guess you call them risk <laughs> factors for recurrence. What are some of those, I guess, in your experience that you've seen? You know, you see this kind of patient profile, you're like, okay, you're at a high likelihood for having this happen to you. Yeah. You know, what's amazing is we really didn't know this. And so when we were starting on the research journey on shoulder instability, we started putting these factors together. And now, you know, many have written on it. We, you know, we weren't always 
the first one, but if you really look at the glenoid bone loss phenomenon, it's it hasn't been in the literature too, too long. You know, we're talking late 90s with you know, actually one of the early articles, Lou Biliani and some others in AJSM doesn't get cited much, but it's an important one. And then the early 2000s and a lot of that stuff was, was our work, but we were on this research journey of trying to figure this out. And what we found more and more is time matters, the time from your initial instability event to when you come into clinic or when you see that patient, time matters. And it's probably, you know, reasonably young patient, more than three months, four months can change the game. You can have more labrum tears, you can have more cartilage injuries, you can have more bone loss. And what goes with that also? A history of multiple instability events. So multiple recurrences. We know very clearly now that multiple instability events lead to more changes in the shoulder, more labrum tears, more bone loss, more hill sacs bigger hill sacs lesions, et cetera. And then there's some of these other things you have listed, hyperlaxity, competitive contact over red sport, male gender. We actually wrote an arm position at dislocation time repair, Giovanni DiGiacomo and myself, and we found that the leg track was affected based on the arm position, and that being at the side, not as bad, you know, if you were tackled from the side in football or what have you, versus one that you might have fallen out on with an arm outstretched and extended and fallen off your bike. Could be right. different as the glenoid track. So these are all, all things from history, physical, that we found to be important in terms of decision making, well, ultimately what you're gonna do. Yeah. And so in, in your hands, the what's the physical exam look like? What what test are you doing? Are you doing all the the motion tests? Are you testing all the cuff? Or are you just focusing more on the instability type exam maneuvers? I'm pretty scripted about the exams. So it's almost okay. the same for everyone. It's just you kind of script the special test at the end of the day. So this is a great one here where you're supine because you isolate the scapula and it's a really good apprehension test and you can push down and have the surprise test and take your thumb off there when you reduce the joint and you take your thumb off and it's not reduced. And they had a couple of patients in Tay that were very positive surprise tests and right. in this same exact position. I just go through everything inspection, palpation, and active, passive motion, strength, assess the scapula, make sure they're in appropriate garments if it's a female versus male. And you can see the scapula, see the symmetry. You know, sometimes you can get pseudo-laxity or perceived laxity of the shoulder due to brachial plexus injuries, long thoracic nerve palsies, other scapular winging disorders, scapular dyskinesia, maybe if it's not even a full nerve injury. So we really want to make sure we're assessing the scapula well and then we start with a lot of these special tests here that are that are on this slide. We all know pretty well. Yeah. And, and so when you're talking about assessing the scapula pretty well, you know, you're looking at the position of the scapula to see if it's, if it's more of a protracted position or retracted, or, or you're also like looking from the back to see if you see any scapular winging per se, or in, anything else in your mind that you're looking at as far as the scapula is concerned. Because I've re recently doing my sports rotation. And there's a lot more scapular dyskinesis than I <laughs> than I thought. So I know it's seen me way more than I saw it. So <laughs> what are some of those, those tests? <laughs> yeah, I've got clinics full of it. So when you really start looking and understanding, and you know, you go back to Ben Kibler's work, who's been amazing and teaching me a lot of this stuff. And really, it's the inspection and, and looking very closely. What I try to do is focus on the medial edge of the scapula and the tip. And a lot of times you'll see... As they move their arms actively through just a straight flexion and reflection with a little bit of abduction or straight abduction or abducted external rotation, I am trying to do this all actively. You'll see some pretty stark differences between 
scapular behavior side to side between the symptomatic asymptomatic shoulder. Now, some of that could just be, you know, a six scapula syndrome where the muscles have shut down because they've had chronic instability for now more than four to six months. And the rhomboids, the serratus, the low trapezius are not firing in phase as well. And, you know, these are things that you can help. And, and certainly if we're thinking about posterior instability, this is where I'm really trying to fine-tune their scapula because it's so important. I mean, it's, it's always important in anterior instability, but it's just a little harder on anterior instability from pure scapular work, whereas posterior instability, if you, get, if you tune up the scapula, you can you know, treat a labrum tear posteriorly, non-operatively. Right. Okay. And so, say, for example, we have our patient, you know, they come in, they've had this history of multiple dislocation events, tried non-operative treatment, you know, you, you do your physical exam. We're, we're not going to belabor that. For those listening, we have a prior episode going over anterior shoulder instability if you want to deeper dive into physical exams. But say they have a positive, you know, load and shift test. What imaging are you getting? And you start off with x-rays or do you go just to CT scan or what in, What imaging do you get? And what are you looking for? Yeah, I'm pretty traditional. So we'll get, we'll get standard x-rays, true AP, AP, and an axillary. We can also get a West Point axillary. So I just generally try to get both of those. And you can see it, you put it out really nicely here. I'll just pop that glenoid and you can see that subtle anterior rim fracture where you can see attritional bone loss. You see the cortex posteriorly there very nicely, but anteriorly you've lost that cortical, you lost that cortical rim anteriorly. I mean, with or without that bone fragment, you got to be able to pick that up. Now, they generally go to MRI. The problem with MRI, the problem with CT is it all depends on how it protocoled in the axle MRI and the axle CT. We published on this, underestimates the amount of bone loss. And you really have to look at the three-dimensional or have a properly protocoled sagittal oblique, meaning you have to reorient the cuts so they're taken perpendicular to the long axis of glenoid. There you go. Yeah, so that belongs there from A1 to B1 there. You want to make sure you're taking your cuts perpendicular along the axis of the glenoid. And what we generally found was that the cuts that the MRI scanner and, and CT made were about 30 degrees or 40 degrees off. And so that's why the axle view is not very good when you look at this. You can see the labrum tear, but it's not good to assess this defect. Right. That there is a nice view on the right there of a nice reprotocoled sagittal oblique, non-three-dimensional. But if you don't reprotocol it, it's, it, it's kind of hard to see. Right, yeah. So you need to get these in the plane of the scapula. And so when you're assessing the CT scans, like how are you computing, you know, this, because we're all looking for, for bone loss, right? And we're trying to figure out how we're going to treat this patient, depending on maybe the type of bone loss that they have. So how are you, I guess, measuring things on a CT scan and what are you looking for? I know you talked about a 3D CT. Yeah. So whether you this, the, the nice one you had in that slide before in the 2D sagittal or this 3D where I generally do the Huseman's technique, which is, or their Pico or what have you. It's the bottom two thirds of the glenoid is a well-conserved circle. And you can see it there very nicely on the normal glenoid. Why? It's probably where the, you know, except in extremes of position of the shoulder, except in pitchers or volleyball or significant overhead athletes, that humerus doesn't articulate superiorly in that superior part of the glenoid. It articulates right where that circle is. So that circle is very well-conserved and to do it research-wise, we've generally done it from a surface area method, meaning how many square millimeters are deficient in that circle when you do pi r squared or <laughs> measure it out. I think you had the next right. pair of kind of measuring out how much was there. But 
that is generally the way the way I do it, especially if we're doing research. Now, if you're quick, down and dirty in clinic, it's pretty close to do that diameter difference and then do that diameter differential and say that D2 line to C2 line there is 21 millimeters and it goes should go all the way out to the circle at 28. So that's seven millimeters of deficiency. That's 25% bone loss. Right. So we're just getting, yeah, again, just kind of summarizing it. So you're getting that, that circle of the inferior part of the glenoid really just kind of getting the ratio of the bone that's there to what's supposed to be there. And you use that calculation to decide what percent of bone loss that you have using these kind of these sagittal oblique images. And then also you talked about using the 3D CT scans. Do you prefer one or the other? Well, we found 3D to be just much easier in a flat seat. I don't think you have to get it. You know, some CTs charge more for a 3D, believe it or not, to protocol it. And I don't know why, because it's basically a turning a switch on the software. And sure. we can do right. it with, you know, we can do it on our computers now with, you know, certain commercial softwares that are free, basically. And you can protocol it and digitally subtract mm. the humoral. Oh, okay. Yeah. I, I didn't know that. And so there are a couple different studies out that are showing, I guess, with the critical amount of bone losses. So can you kind of just based on that and, and how much bone loss is like, do we need before like, okay, we need to do some type of augmentation or do something else like this kind of critical bone loss level. Yeah. This, this is probably a podcast in and of itself and uh, <laughs> massive, massive podium debates, which we love. So we used to think it was in 15, 20, 25, 30% range. And, you know, Pat Grice and Etoy and Yamamoto and you know, they all showed us these numbers. We we actually looked at it and found 25% in an article back in 2004, uh, almost 20 years ago, that was a quote-unquote critical amount. But that number keeps changing. Ito and Yamamoto came out with the glenoid track and presented in the late 2000s at the Academy. And I actually went to it. I actually was in person at the presentation when we unveiled. I said, this is brilliant. Now, yeah. if you actually talk to Ito and Yamamoto about it, they, they actually got rejected for this from a number of journals. <laughs> really? Because, yeah, it was very interesting and finally got it published, obviously. And sometimes when you're so forward thinking or so far ahead, it can be hard to get through the peer-reviewed process at, at times. And, you know, we've been the victim, we're always probably the victim of that in terms of trying to get cutting edge research out there. But what what we're at now, I think, and if you look at JT Togas, you look at some of our work, we're right around the 10, 12, 15% range. We're starting to get nervous. They're starting to really think about what does your athlete do? What are their goals? What's their chance of redislocation? What sport are they going back to? What's their long-term goals of the shoulder, et cetera, versus their short-term goals? So you kind of put this all together once you understand, you know, at least glenoid loss will be in the 10, 12, 15%. You can put the glenoid track and do the measurements of that, which actually is is not rocket science. You can actually do it pretty easily. There's a bunch of PowerPoints out there on that. We won't belabor that on how to do it. But we, the reason the glenoid track is important is because the glenoid interacts with the humerus and the hill sacs basically becomes more important if you have glenoid bone loss. So the same hill sacs, more glenoid bone loss means hill sacs more important. It's just easier to engage. So as you've demonstrated here. Right. And for the people listening, can you explain this, the difference between an on-track and an off-track lead? I know a lot of us sometimes get confused hearing everything off-track and on-track and engaging and not engaging. You just kind of explain what an engaging lesion is when the humeral head defect engages in the glenoid. But what are 
kind of this track concept? The glenoid track was devised to take into account that shoulder instability is a bipolar problem. It involves both the humerus and the glenoid. And when you have bone loss on both, it's hard to really understand how those interact. And so the glenoid track concept basically took into account the contact area between the humerus and the glenoid by doing measurements of glenoid bone loss, which we just talked about calculating. But then also the unique measurements was what was the position of the hill sacs relative to the rotator cuff was initially how it was defined. And there's okay. a few other iterations of it now, but basically it's showing how the how the shoulder interacts with itself, <laughs> the humerus relative yeah. to the glenoid. No, yeah, no, that, that that makes perfect sense. And thanks for explaining that. And so you just mentioned a little bit about, you know, it's kind of a conversation with the patient, their activity levels of how you're going to proceed with treatment. In your eyes, which patients undergo non-operative treatment and how do you choose that? And then what is that non-operative treatment? And then we can move forth and talk about operative treatment, if any, for yeah. non-op. <laughs> yeah. So this is a huge debate in terms of, you know, whether to operate or not. I, I want to preface this by saying I love operating on a fresh bank art tear. And the outcomes of early surgery in match groups again and again and again have been shown to do better than those that are chronically treated. So the same type of repair. So I'm, I'm biased in that I like doing it early because at the end of the day, you just do better. Your scores are better. If you go back to Sandy Kirkley's work and she was a, a great human before her untimely passing, she showed in a randomized trial, and now it's been shown again and again, that early early stabilization does better in a randomized trial. Now, that being said, there are cases where we're going to let so-and-so go back to play, or maybe the age of the patient is such that they had a dislocation in their 50s or 60s. They don't have a big rotator cuff tear. We're all worried about the rotator cuff tear over age 40. After a shoulder dislocation, get the MRI, of course. So say they don't have a rotator cuff tear, but they've got a bank heart tear, a little bit of bone issue or softening or something in the front. That's a great patient to treat non-operatively, as we would probably surmise and then put together. But when you're looking at the younger patient, the the 16, the 28-year-old, the 16 to 25, the 30-year-old, something like that, ones that are higher demand, those are the ones that you probably want to think about earlier surgery. Again, the outcomes are going to be better, but there are times you just, I've returned many a player after, you know, two weeks in a rehab and a sling after an NFL shoulder dislocation because they've got four more games left in the season or in college football or a SEAL team individual that's got, has to go on deployment in six months and cannot leave his platoon high and dry. He's going on deployment. I'll see you when you get back in six, seven months. And Right. I already know you're going to have 20 or 30% bone loss or something. We still haven't fully solved this, and it's probably one of the biggest biggest debates, but it's really a personal individual discussion at the end of the day. Okay. No, that, that makes perfect sense. Again, you got every patient their own individual, and you need to, everybody has their own different factors that you need to factor in on how you're going to manage them and how you're going to treat them. And so not many were, were managing not op or, you know, given certain situations. So, Changing gears and going towards kind of the surgical management and how you treat this. 
So I, I figured maybe we could kind of break it down into the amount of bone loss that is occurring and we can talk about kind of different treatment options for that. So in your eyes, what is your, your, your typical treatment algorithm when you're talking about operating on these patients? Yeah. So someone who gets early surgery is, you know, it's almost what you have here, a, a bank heart fracture or clonite fracture, 10, 15, 20% fracture that's acute. Their shoulder was fine. It dislocated. They've got a fracture you can see on x-ray. Enter like that gets fixed early. Like that, that for me to put a patient back that has a fracture, I just, I, I have a hard time doing that because we know we can make it better. They've got a fracture. It's not just a bank heart tear. So when you're in this situation where you've got say 20% or 15% or less, keep in mind that bone loss in the shoulder adds up very fast. But next time you can pull a plastic model, pull a sawbones model of a glenoid, and that's a true generally a true size, it doesn't take long before you start making cuts on that thing before you get some pretty significant bone loss. So the, as you said, the glenoid doesn't take a joke and every 1.5 millimeters about on average, 1.5, 1.6, 1.7 millimeters when you're slicing it is 5% bone loss. So three millimeters, 10%, four and a half millimeters-ish, five millimeters, almost 15%. So it adds up really quickly. So three, four, five millimeters can be 12, 15, 18% before you know it. But in general, if their risk factors are pretty low, if their bone loss is less than 15%, soft tissue stabilization, just like you have here, posterior repair, full labrum repair, going around the back is needed in the labrum. And then I, I would add in a rem plissage if they uh, have hill sacs or if it's amenable to that. Our rem plissage data continues to show very favorable result and decreased recurrence, especially in some pretty recent literature, randomized literature. Yeah. I know that's one of the things they test us on or, or doing a replissage or filling that humeral head defect with the infraspinatus, you know, putting an anchor there and, and filling it that especially in patients with bone loss, that that leads to decreased recurrence rates. And, and really quick, when you're doing a, a bony banker, what's your, I guess your preferred fixation method, you know, one could be for bony bank heart and maybe for, you know, just kind of all soft tissue. Yes. So the, the bony one, I'll generally do a number of anchors. Sometimes I'll come immediately and do almost a bridge technique. So we're going immediately down the glenoid with a couple anchors then bridging up some sutures up to the most inferior part of the glenoid and superior part of the glenoid, or you, you can put anchors top, bottom, around but I do like getting some medial anchor or even doing arthroscopically assisted small drilling. If a small screw will be able to accommodate, be accommodative in there. Headless compression screws, I've used small 2.5 or 3.0 millimeter headless compression screws or multiple different anchor configurations. Generally, I do a bridge technique, almost, almost like a rotator cuff bridge, but you're doing it over the bone. The key is though, I, I like, and I know some people have advocated this, but I, I don't like putting suture over cartilage because you got cartilage on that B there. And right. So I like keep suture away from that and putting the anchors top and bottom below this bony fragment. But I've seen others that have put it over it and had, had reasonable results. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. And so, you know, that's kind of our management for the ones that have a little bit, you know, minimal bone loss, or maybe there's a bony fragment that you can put back and fix, you know, like you just said, with a headless compression screw or a screw, or, you know, you may use some anchors and posteriorly do a remplissage to address a humeral head defect. 
Now, what about when the bone loss starts to become a little bit over 20? Like, let's say anywhere from 15%-ish to 30% or 20 to 30, give or take. Yeah, so you've shown it nicely here. You know, Ladder J is, is a great workhorse. And I've also really big, done iliac crest. I'm starting at, you know, 30% thinking about iliac crest. But really, at the end of the day, if it's big enough, I've done a lot of uh, distal tibial allograft reconstruction, and that's worked out really well, being much more anatomic, not transferring the conjoint tendon, but the you do lose a portion of the triple blocking effect, potentially, meaning the conjoint tendon aspect of the latter J, which you've shown here, very nice, is the conjoint tendon sling effect, or which is one part of the triple blocking, the other part is the bone, and the third part is the capsule repair. So there's, again, the triple blocking is the bone, the sling effect of the conjoint plus a capsule repair. So what you lose with a free bone block, you can pick your free bone block of choice. So you have crest, distal clavicle, distal tibia, fresh or even frozen that Ivan Wong has shown us works quite well. What you're losing is probably the sling effect. And there probably is a little bit of a benefit, although I'm not, jury's out still a little bit for me, although Yamamoto and others have shown biomechanically the sling effect is additive for the stability of the shoulder, but the latter, between ladder J and a free bone block, meaning distal tibia is basically what I'll do for these cases. Yeah. And so really quickly, I guess what's the difference between, or can you explain the difference between a ladder J and a, and a Bristow procedure? And then we can, we'll test base on those procedures here in a second. Yeah. So the Bristow is probably one of the earlier ones. So the latter J has been around since the late fifties, but Bristow was really just a, a simple one screw, right? He's just taking a smaller tip of the coracoid, taking eight, 10, 12 millimeters and putting it in this way such that the conjoint tendon generally jutted out, you know, straight at straight anterior. The latter J was designed to increase the bony contour to screw fixation, maybe prevent some rotation. I could be speaking out of turn here, not being around in the 50s when it was designed, but the, those are the benefits we see adding the, you know, adding the ladder J in is two screws, less rotation, but it does orient the conjoint tendon a little bit differently and puts it under a little bit more tension. So there may be more of a sling effect, but it could also be more complications as well because you're at a different tension. So there's a lot of different ways to do this, a lot of different ways to manage the capsule, a lot of different ways to handle the subscap and take it down or split it. But in general, you really want to try to keep a subscap to do it through a subscap split because you can take advantage of one of the sling effect. And number two, it's been shown that a, a split is much, much, much better for the subscap with less fatty atrophy down the road, with less tears, with less subscap issues, which are the real deal. Subscap's what I worry about 24-7. Yeah. And you took a question right out of my mouth. That's what I was going to ask you about how, kind of how you, I guess your your tips and I guess tricks or things that have worked for you. And then also about the subscap. I was going to say, do you make your split at the bottom two thirds and one third? Is that where you typically make your split in the subscap that works for you? Yeah, pretty much. And, you know, Joe Walsh has been a master of this, obviously. And you know, unless they're a uh, hey, where you're trying to get a little bit more stability, you would cheat it up a little higher. But in general, about 50, keep in mind the subscap's about five centimeters top to bottom, so 45, 50 millimeters. So I generally measure down about 28, 30 millimeters from the top of the rolled edge, so about two and a half, three centimeters. 
That's about two thirds, one third. So two thirds of the top, one third at the bottom. Any little higher if there's, if you're a little bit of hyperlaxity, as Joel Walsh would say. Okay. So you have a little bit higher if, if there's some hyperlaxity. In your experience in doing these, any other tips or tricks that you've figured out throughout the years that have made this procedure a lot more reproducible and just like a lot easier than easier to do? I guess you could say, not, not saying that it's easy, but just like some tips and tricks to the procedure to do it a lot of J. Yeah, for sure. And to quote Rich Hawkins, the, these are hard surgeries. So the best is to practice. The patients we tend to do these on can be very well muscled and it's it can be a very deep, dark hole to do this open, hence the least interest in arthroscopic latergé, although I've pretty much stopped arthroscopic latergé. For me, I can just do it better open. It's much more reproducible. I can line the graft up better. I can get the fixation better. However, free bone block, I'm doing quite a few arthroscopic because you don't have to mess with the conjoint and the subscap split and all that type of stuff. I don't need to touch the subscap. So we're getting much better. And I think the technology and techniques and equipment will allow us pretty soon to do the free bone block procedure very reliably arthroscopically. Yeah. And so what's making your decision go towards saying, oh, instead of a ladder J, this may need some type of a, a free bone block. Like you mentioned earlier, you mentioned, you know, iliac crest, you mentioned distal tibia. What's making you say, ah, I think we probably need a bigger, like a, a, a bone block. Yeah. So failed cases, failed priors. I'll, you know, definitely think about a bone block, especially, and then that could be even be less than 25%. It could be in 10%, 15%. I also think about it in, you know, 2015, 20, 25% for sure. I'm thinking about a bone block in general, whether it's a free bone block versus a ladder J, sort of get the decision-making of, you know, what are they going back to? What have they had before? You know, these patients have had prior surgery or prior scopes or just lived with instability for a long time. So you just want to talk to the patient about the various options, whether it's DTA or really at Crest or their own. Yeah. And how do you decide between like DTA or, or I guess you just, you just tell them that I guess the benefits of, you know, this being a, an autograph coming from your own body or, you know, how do you decide between those two? Yeah. Generally, you know, I, if I think about it more of a, you know, as a cartilage problem, the distal tibia has really nice cartilage. We've mapped that out to show that it's almost matches the same thickness of the, the glenoid had the same mechanical properties. It's got really nice bone density and we've seen really good healing with it when I've scoped either my own or others the, sometimes the cartilage is the of the t- distal tibia is the best cartilage in the whole shoulder joint right. you know because patients that had multiple instability events they've had early arthritis post-traumatic arthropathy etc so it's still a little bit of a difficult decision but I, I usually generally present both if they want their own tissue if they what maybe, I don't know, It's we, we showed no difference in in outcomes when we compared ours in a level three study between distal tibia and Latterge in terms of their overall outcomes, graft resorption, et cetera. So I think more and more to free bone block, the Latterge could possibly give you maybe a few couple points extra of stability at the end of the day. Yeah. Mostly because of the sling effect. I mean, to be completely honest. So if you're maybe swayed one way or the other, maybe the latter shades, you know, if you really, really have a super high end contact athlete, 
maybe it's a little bit better, but we've done very well with contact athletes with a distal tibia. Okay. And any tips and tricks for the surgery? Let's say you're doing a, a distal tibia allograft. And I remember specifically one day I, I was doing one with one of our attendings and he was like, yeah, you soak the, the graft in some of the patient's own blood. It'll, it'll kind of help. And I remember him specifically saying that you taught him that. <laughs> and I don't know what this popped in my head. But any other, I guess, tips and tricks for when you're doing the, these cases to try to get the best outcome? Yeah, absolutely. It's a great question. You know, I try to soak it in their own blood, their own PRP. You know, like I, if I can't get PRP for whatever reason, I'll take it off proximally humerus and spin it down as best we can and soak the graft in it. I do like two screws, solid 4.0 millimeter screws, solid fixation, lag technique. I repair suture, I use suture washers on the screws to repair the capsule to the front of the graft on the distal tibia. And a lot of times I'll use an anchor at the bottom and top, just like we talked about doing a, a bone fragment to repair the labrum top and bottom. Because the labrum can be used to help, you know, hold everything in place. It, it's kind of a cool, cool thing. That's super, that, that circumferential labrum is is really tight and, and solid to hold things in. So I try to take advantage of that as well. And, you know, it's just good you know, really good position. I put my fingers in there all the time trying to, you know, feel if it fits right. Right. Yeah. No, I've seen, I think maybe two or three of these and I, every time it's been an awesome case and a really fun cases to do as well. And in your revision, when you're doing kind of these or you're doing revision surgeries or, you know, they've had a previous, say a previous ladder J or, or, you know, yeah, yeah. Let's say a previous ladder J. I remember hearing one of your talks and you were talking about the approach is completely different when you're doing, you know, a revision versus just a, you know, a primary procedure, but any, I guess, what should people know about when they're doing revision surgeries? Yeah, it's, this has been a great journey and a great, great learning. I, I always try to maximize my sleep the night before. No, I'm not, <laughs> not kidding, but no, these are our, you know, these, especially a failed ladder J, it's, it's non-anatomic. It's a non-anatomic procedure. When you get a failed ladder J that comes at clinic, I, you know, I see a reasonable number of these. The scar, the axillary nerve, the musculocutaneous nerve, the conjoint tendon, the displaced bone block, the hardware issues, complications there. This is a tough case. You just have to be very scripted in how you approach it, meaning you got to understand the anatomy. You got to find what's safe. And then you got to go, okay, we know what's safe. Here's next safe spot, next safe spot, next safe spot. Let's find the anterior glenoid. Let's find the screws. Let's find the bone block. Let's find the conjoint. Now let's find the axillary nerve and protect that. And so there's various steps I take to make sure we're as safe as possible, but these are very hard cases, but we've shown good outcomes after Phil Latterjay with the distal tibia. And it's been quite humbling, honestly, as long as, you know, everything else goes fine. There's a lot of things that can go wrong with the surgery. Right. Yeah. Very, very true. Yeah, Dr. Prevention, this has been a, a great talk. You know, I, I learned a lot, you know, talking talking with you about, you know, recurrent shoulder instability and what to do with these different patients that have, you know, different size bone defects or even how to approach different patients in different situations that may be going on. Anything else you want the, the listeners to know about, you know, kind of recurrent shoulder instability before we wrap up here? Yeah, no, I mean, just looking back on all this stuff is it's been kind of a cool journey. And, and I would encourage, you know, those that are listening to think about something that you're passionate about, that you see, that you like, that you want to understand more, that you can help us in, in orthopedics be better. Start a project and then, you know, the more questions you ask, the more questions you have. That's why this one's been really, really kind of a fun research project and clinical translational journey for us. And 
I would encourage everyone out there to, to do the same. It's not a, it's a little bit of work, but it's not a ton. And you can just, if you stay focused on a few topics, it, it's super cool. And so that's my biggest advice. Well, awesome. Uh, again, Dr. Fletcher, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. For those that are listening, we hope that you all enjoyed it, learned a lot. Please go and leave a review. Let us know how much you enjoy listening to this episode. And again, thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to come on our podcast and help kind of educate the audience. Thanks to you and Elder Dorth. I really appreciate it. It's uh, been a true, true honor and pleasure. We hope that you all enjoyed this episode on anterior shoulder instability and patients that have a little bit larger bone defects. Hope you learned a lot. I learned a lot just kind of putting this together and doing this podcast with Dr. Preventure. And so we hope that you all enjoyed it. Please go and leave a review, leave a rating, let us know how much you enjoyed it. And without further ado, we will see you all next episode. Everyone has a story, different needs, wants, and goals, and how to attain them. Your story determines your solution. Whatever your situation and story, locum tenens should be a part of the conversation. How do you find out if locum tenens is a good option for you? Go to an unbiased, informative source like locumstory.com. You'll learn all the ins and outs of locums, details on travel and housing, assignment coordination, tax information, and more. You'll also hear firsthand stories from local physicians from all walks of life, so you get a bigger picture of the diverse options. Get a comprehensive view of locums and decide if it's right for you at locumstory.com.